Stokes and welcome to Strategy Bytes. I am the co-founder of Oak Tree Talent Group, a specialist strategy and transformation recruitment agency. Strategy Bytes is a compilation of career stories and insights from the market's most experienced executives. Many have gained their strategy toolkit from management consulting. In each episode, we ask the best of the industry's talent to share the highs and lows of their careers and the best bits of advice they've ever been given. They will give us a glimpse of what their day-to-day lives look like now, warts and all. Our aim is to give inspiration to the ambitious strategists out there and give them an understanding of what is possible. In each episode, we will ask guests for a read, watch or listen to recommendation and a quote or value that they live their lives by. Series two, episode eight, I believe, of the Strategy Bites podcast. Thank you for joining me. This week we have a very special guest, uh, Dr. Lily Sussman. Lily is the Chief Strategy Officer at Wiser, a purpose-driven fintech based here in Sydney. Um, however, she has a management consulting background from BCG in Boston and moved to Australia in 2014 to take on a role with CBA. So welcome, Dr. Lily Sussman, to the Strategy Bites podcast. Of course, he, here in Sydney, we are in lockdown. Lily, how are you coping? Oh, <laughs> I think like many others, I've got a, a, a small homeschool age child. She's in year two, and so I'm struggling with that, you know, realizing that all of a sudden you've got 45 hours of extra work each week. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely tough. It's tough. But, uh, you know, taking it one day at a time and <laughs> everyone's in it together. Yeah, exactly. exactly. We're about five weeks in now, but um, goodness, who knows when it's going to end. But, uh, <laughs> um, but Lily, I've given you a bit of an introduction. However, are you able to con- give us a bit of an overview of your, uh, of your background and your career to date, please? Sure. Yeah. I mean, thanks for having me. Um, it's really nice to see your face and <laughs> have a chat um, yes. while we're locked down. It's really yeah. nice to connect. I um, So I'm currently the Chief Strategy Officer at Wiser, which is a, a purpose-led fintech um, based in Sydney in the Aussie fintech space. Um, before Wiser, I was the Chief Strategy Officer at Social Ventures Australia, which is um, a really awesome not-for-profit that is the largest not-for-profit consultancy in Australia. It's a global leader in impact investing. It's also a social innovation engine for the Australian system focused on reducing social disadvantage. Before that, I spent a number of years in industry and financial services here in Sydney working at CBA. And um, I also spent a number of years at BCG in Boston Um, where I uh, probably lived for longest I've lived anywhere, which was nine years at the time before I moved to Sydney. Um, And um, I did my uh, postgraduate studies, my PhD there. Um, Before that, I worked in lots of different industries and roles in New York, in DC. um, And uh, yeah, just a very, very background. You know, I've been an academic. I've done international development, not for profit. I've done kind of public sector. I've done a lot of private sector, finance, you name it. So lots lots (laughs) of different things. Chronic career changer. That's me. Um, Love to just try out different things, you know, live a, live a full life. Spice of life, hey. <laughs> um, but you mentioned earlier you were uh, you, you were an academic, so you studied at you know Oxford University, Yale, and, and obviously gaining a master's. 
and PhD at Harvard. I mean, what was it you, back then, what did you think was uh, what you wanted to do when you were younger? I mean, what was the grand master plan for you? <laughs> well, <laughs> you can probably already tell I'm not a grand master plan kind of person. Um, <laughs> more like uh, take each chapter as it comes, you know? I think um, it's interesting. Um, one of the things that uh, we do when we get older or, or just a very human cognitive bias is to have hindsight bias where you think something was knowable or predictable back then because you understand and predict it now. You know, I can weave a story about my career now, but I know that back then, really, I didn't have a clue. You know, I think I was just taking each chapter as it comes. And, you know, I always try, the one thing that I feel happy, really happy about is that I followed intellectual curiosity. Like, you know, I did all these degrees. I didn't really end up using them in my work, but they all went into kind of just forming me, you know, and I did it out of intellectual curiosity, which um, I think is the best reason to do stuff, you know, intrinsic motivation. So yeah, I mean, I, I um, studied different masters, went back to school multiple times, and each time is really just to learn something else that I was curious about. And I didn't know what career it would lead um, to at all. Um, really, really, I wasn't thinking so much about that in my kind of 20s. Um, when I kept going back forth between working and studying. I was more just like, what do I want to do next year? You know? Um, and uh, I think a lot of people are like that and, and that's okay. You know, grandmaster plans are, uh, you know, people change over the years anyway. So I don't know if anybody has a plan that it ends up working out just the way they expect. But you did join BCG, um, obviously at one, at one point, what, I mean, what was it that sort of drew you to the top tier consulting firm? Um, what took you down that path? Yeah, you know, I was nearing the end of my PhD, and I had realized kind of in, in writing um, the book that was my dissertation, I, I started realizing that's not what I wanted to do over and over again. And I thought, gosh, you know, I'm really an extrovert. I love people. And it's very lonely doing these single author publications and working in a lab. And I sort of thought, oh, I think I need more out of life. And so then I thought, okay, I'm back here again, not really sure what to do. And so I went to the Office of Career Services and I said, well, you know, what are my options here? And they sort of said, well, why don't you go along to, you know, different like companies and et cetera, people of all stripes that are recruiting on campus and just have a look. So I went to this one BCG event and the first person that came up to speak was, uh, I think he said something like, I'm in astronomy or philosophy or something like that, you know, um, PhD student at Berkeley. And I really had no idea what I want to do, but I'm curious about all these things. And I ended up BCG, at BCG because I just wanted to learn about everything that was out there. And, you know, what are all the industries doing and, you know, how is the world made up? And, you know, I really love my experience, ABC. So I, I was just hooked. I was like, wait a minute. So there's a career you can go in and just try everything and uh, just explore all different kinds of jobs in a short amount of time yeah that's what got me I thought ooh, brilliant <laughs> the no commitment career career <laughs> yeah so the, the actual um you know the fact that you go in as a generalist actually really suited you yeah completely I think that that was the very value proposition for me the fact that I didn't have to commit to something and I could try and learn a lot of different things um, yeah, so, so that did it for me. And, and, you know, I was, I was lucky to, to get a spot, you know, I think they took a chance on me and being a PhD student and not having so much of a background in business, not having an MBA. Um, it is a bit 
of a chance taking. So I'm grateful for that opportunity. Mm. And did you find yourself sort of leaning towards anything in particular when you were sort of doing the, uh, the, the projects at BCG? Um, you know what? I particularly did find I was really keen, keenly interested in the org projects because, you know, I loved thinking about people problems. It wasn't something that I was good at that I knew how to think about, you know, and uh, they were really interesting. They were really interesting. So I quite like the org discipline. You know, uh, you have to do a bit of everything. And I really appreciate the kind of strategy and the, yeah, even, even a lot of like the PMO transformation cases, really fantastic, really help you to learn how to, you know, drive and execute change. And so I learned so much from everything, but yeah, I did gravitate. I found particularly intellectually interesting, the org cases. Mm. And in every sector or? Um, yeah, I did so many sectors, you know, they all each have their own challenges. Um, yeah, I really enjoyed the healthcare sector, but really like, honestly, everything like retail, um, IT, financial services, obviously. I think, you know, I, I wouldn't be alone in saying this. I know you talk to a lot of ex-consultants, but there's so much, there's so much more similarity uh, between industries than there are, you know, um, across them that I think uh, every industry has its own combination of challenges. It's always a group of people trying to come together to do something interesting, you know, yeah. so. Yeah. And thinking back on the consulting days, I mean, did you love the lifestyle and you know, does it, does it bring back fond memories for you? And do you feel like the skill set that you learned when you were there sort of has set you up for success and other opportunities that you've taken on post consulting? You know, yes and no. I mean, in terms of like fond memories, I I'm so grateful to my time there because it's just taught me so much in such a short period of time. And it was the first time in my life, honestly, that I was told that I was just like bad at something, you know, they were like, <laughs> you're like, you might be on the chopping block. You know, you've got six months to sort yourself out. And I think this happened to a lot of people. And I was terrified. It's never happened to me before, you know. Um, and so I think it just taught me a lot about resilience. And, you know, when, when you're being tested, it's not fun in the moment when you're going through it. Yeah. It's tough to, to be building resilience. You know, when I look back, I'm like, gosh, that was fantastic. I appreciate that. But at the time, I was like, dang, this is hard. You know, I don't, I don't know what to do. You know, how, how do I, how do I sort myself out here and, and what's wrong? And is it them or is it me? You know, there's a lot of that, but, uh, but I look back and I'm like, wow, that was a great experience, but I'm not someone, I have to say, I don't really, you know, once I'm over the period of my life where you're traveling four days a week for years and years and years, you kind of, I don't miss that. Yeah. <laughs> I must say I, I don't miss the travel at all. <laughs> yeah. I'm perfectly happy staying put now. And, you know, once you have a family too, it becomes really completely undesirable. So, yeah. yeah. But you feel like the skills that you learned there were invaluable? Oh my God. Yes, absolutely. You know, I think I've heard it on your podcast before, but I think really the sort of courage, the courage of just saying no problem is big. Every problem is just like an interesting variant of another that you've probably already seen before. And uh, in fact, the bigger the problem, the meatier, the more fun you might have in breaking it down, right? And just very quickly taking something that is confusing and big and simplifying it. I love doing that. It just feels good in my brain to do that. And I think that's a great skill that you help sharpen and also on delivery and execution. I feel like it taught me so much about how to just stay really, really organized and be just awesome at planning and just executing stuff. And that part, you know, I'll take with me forever. So uh, 
Yeah, really love that experience. I think it's phenomenal. And as I said, it builds tremendous resilience to be learning at such a quick pace and to be thrown into hot water, new industry, new team, new challenge every time, every couple months. It's awesome experience. Mm. But in 2015, you decided to leave BCG and you came to Australia. Um, was it in, you moved to Australia in 2015? Yeah, yeah. I think we came tail end of 2014. Um, I'm, we moved to Australia because my partner is a academic and he took up a position at University of Sydney right. and we moved out here and I was really thinking, you know, should I get a transfer out here and stay with consulting because I was a new mother and because my husband was, you know, starting his new kind of big academic job, it was his turn in the family and I wanted to support him and I wanted to not be so hard on myself for a change and, um, just really have a job that allowed me a little bit more work-life balance. And it's so crazy hard to be a working mother as it is, you know, no matter what industry, whatever you're doing, I think consulting just brings it up to, to that extra level hard because you have to juggle the travel commitments. So I thought I would just take that out of the equation and um, try something in industry. And so that's why I ended up leaving for, for family reasons. Mm. And I remember that I remember it very well. I mean, I placed um, Simon Gatorna into CBA the year before out of BCG actually. And I remember him being extremely chuffed with himself that he attracted such great talent to his team. Um, so what was it that actually attracted you to, to CBA back then? You know, it's funny cause I, you know, as, as people do talk to a lot of people in the alumni network and just ask, you know, do you love your job? What are you doing? You know, how do you feel about it? And I talked to a couple of people at um, CBA who gave a glowing account. You know, they said, I'm really happy actually, you know, I'm really supported here. And to his credit, you know, Simon, um, who is just fantastic. He um, knew exactly what I needed. Like the conversations he had with me during the recruitment process, none of them were about the job. They were all about what do you need as a mother, you know, and helping to connect me to other kind of working mothers who both wanted to do as much as they could in their career and, and make a difference, you know, with their time, you know, be ambitious, make a difference. But then also, how do you juggle that, that challenge that immense challenge of being a new mother and those are the conversations he set up for me mm. you know not so much about the traditional recruiting stuff and I think that's because he had high EQ as a leader and just knew what people needed you know so I was really lucky I think I went to CBA because I felt like I would it would be the perfect sort of next step for me and and actually I remember at the time that I had gotten some advice not to do it because you know, it was too much of a, a junior middle management role and would I get stuck there and all that. And I, I just, I didn't listen to that advice because I felt emotionally it was right. You know, is what I needed at the time. I wanted an easier job deliberately. Like I wanted a job where I didn't feel like I was going to be drowning and trying to catch up and trying to, you know, because I wanted only to do nine to five because mm. I wanted to come home and um, be with my baby and, and so on. So I think it was what I needed at the time. Yeah. A new country, new mom. And I'm just to find a, find a place that fits you, the person. Mm, absolutely. And did you feel that the transition out of consulting into industry was one that you found hard? I mean, obviously you were also moving country and had a baby. Was that transition difficult for you? Um, I think that any time you change careers, it is hard. So yes, it's hard because you have to adjust your expectations, right? Um, 
the BCG kind of environment teaches you that you need to work at this insane, otherwise you're not doing anything, you know? And you are used to kind of having little to no tolerance of different speeds of working. And I think when you step into a large organization, um, it's not like that. There's lots of different people working at lots of different speeds, you know, and you have to learn to manage work and lead people in a very different way. So yeah, it was an adjustment. Remember, you know, one of the four and challenged by the same time is when I started my first role out of BCG um, in CBA, I was sort of left alone and not really given any tough deadlines for three months because they just trusted me to learn, go and learn the business and build the relationships I needed to build to be effective, you know? And I was kind of like, yeah, but what are the deadlines? Like, what are the deliverables? And I remember just thinking, oh my God, do I even have a job to do here? Um, and being nervous about that, right? You hear about that. Gosh, you know, it's fantastic. I had that time. I was given that time to really learn. And, and it's not like, you know, I wasn't going to be self-motivated and figure out what are the problems that need solving anyways. Mm. So in a way, it was a, it was a great way of transitioning someone, even though I think it's normal to feel a degree of confusion. I think that's just par for the course, but you just give yourself time. You'll figure it out always. Mm. Mm, absolutely. I mean, I find that consultants that um, sometimes struggle with the pace um, of going from a consulting firm into a, an industry firm, just not like you say, not really quite knowing exactly how late they should be staying. I remember, you know, getting calls from people going, "Hey, it's six o'clock and everyone's left. What do I do <laughs> on their first week?" But um, do you find, obviously, that did you find that when you started, obviously having like-minded people around you, you know, ex BCG people like Kelly Bear Rosmarin and other peers and uh, from the top tier, did you find that helped you sort of? be successful there and, and find your way quicker? Um, you know, I don't know that it did because I think, you know, you're out of BCG. You're not in a BCG environment. You're in the environment of the organization you're in. So you need to adapt to that and everyone works in that way. Um, so I'm not sure it necessarily helped me. Um, I think, I think being seen is important. Right. So in that way, it's helpful to know that there's some people who know where you've come from and what you're capable of and being seen emotionally. But that doesn't mean that you can expect to work in the same way, nor that it's a good thing. You know, people are often leaving consulting as I did because I didn't want to work that way. You know, I was yeah. like, that's not compatible with my having a small child at home, you know, so I don't want to work that way anymore. So I both wanted to leave it, but was afraid of the uncertain future because you're like, well, I'm used to this. What am I going to expect? But I think if you just keep an open heart and you're like, well, how do they do it here? And why do they enjoy that? And realize you can adapt to anything. Then, then over time, yeah, you just adjust expectations. And I found every time I go into a different industry, different organization, people and teams work differently, you know, and, and it's about kind of understanding how they do it and what works there and, and what you want to do personally at that moment in your life. Mm, absolutely. And you had a few, a few different um, strategic roles within CBA and in institutional banking and I think retail, but something quite serious happened to you back then that sort of stopped you in your tracks, didn't it? Yeah, yes, yes. In uh, 2017, this is actually, you know, it's interesting. It's, um, just about four years ago, it happened in July of uh, 2017. I had actually just started a new job um, in product, 
which was a, a product innovation job, really, really fun, had just been doing it for three months, like kind of um, very challenging, very fun job. Uh, when I went on a holiday to uh, visit my in-laws who live in Toronto. So I was coming back and I was uh, on a flight from Toronto to LA. And, um, you know, I was sort of a passenger, like I was sitting in the aisle seat and um, someone who was putting away luggage sort of accidentally knocked out some stuff from the overhead compartment. And, you know, obviously it was an accident. She didn't mean to do it, but uh, she happened to knock out this duty-free bag that had really, really heavy bottle of uh, maple syrup. It was, it was made of glass, one of those huge souvenir bottles that you see in the oh. Toronto airport that are shaped like maple leaves and it weighed like 20 pounds. You know, such a heavy, heavy glass maple leaf shaped thing. It was a huge glass thing. And she knocked it out and fell on my head because I was in the aisle seat. So I, um, it, it was just one of those random freak accidents in life, you know, and uh, I was with my family and, and I didn't lose consciousness. I just thought, you know, I bumped my head and it really hurt. But um, I just assumed that I bumped my head because I didn't faint and, you know, uh, I didn't think too much of it. But then, um, you know, it was really bad. And a couple weeks later, because I found out it takes a couple weeks for your brain cells to really, really die after impact. And um, it was about two, three weeks later when I woke up one day. And, and by this time, I had gotten home to Australia. Um, I woke up one day and I, I realized I couldn't read. I was just, I was just like, I can't, I don't, I don't really understand, but I, you know, I can't read. And I, um, yeah, weird things were happening. You know, I showed up to work and I was sent home. <laughs> My boss was like, I don't think you should be here. And I was like, oh, I'm, I, I'm having trouble remembering things, you know? Yeah. So I, I basically realized that I had suffered a massive brain injury, you know, and it, just like this killed my brain. And I suddenly wasn't able to do anything within, you know, a matter of weeks. I couldn't, um, you know, not only could I not read, I couldn't um, listen to stuff. Like I, it was just felt overwhelming. And then I couldn't walk on the street because I couldn't judge how close or far things were. And like, you know, some sounds would be, I'd be like, oh, you know, is that car close? Like, is it going to hit me? Like I couldn't gauge stuff. And so I was afraid to go outside and I couldn't be, um, I couldn't take care of my daughter anymore. She was three at the time and she was, you know, noisy toddler. And again, I couldn't judge, like everything felt dangerous to me. You know, my brain couldn't figure out signals. I couldn't, I could barely be around her, you know? So my whole life crumbled, you know, I obviously immediately, couldn't go to work at all. That is out of the question. Um, Really, I I could barely do anything, you know. So yeah, that was a a serious, unexpected accident that happened. Wow. Um, It's been terrifying for you. (laughs) And your loved ones, of course. Um, Oh my God, yeah. How did, when did it, when did something sort of, when did it start getting better? Yeah, you know, um, the thing with brain injuries is they, they, um, it, you know, our brains, like neuroplasticity means that you can build it back. You know, when you have um, uh, a brain injury, like the impact, it, it kind of changes the biochemistry of your brain. So it disrupts the connections that were there. And so you can't do stuff in the same way. So you have to rebuild them. And, and, but I guess there is the opportunity to rebuild them and, and maybe even better. 
um, which I didn't know at the time. At the time, I went to neurologists and was just like, what's happening? What's happened to me? And, you know, nothing would show up in an MRI scan because they can't really see, you know, biochemical changes. So nobody could tell me what happened. They just said, just wait and see, just wait and see. You know, nobody could tell me if I was going to recover. I mean, it was absolutely terrifying. It was Thanks. absolutely terrifying. And I, I really... I can't imagine like what it must have been like for my husband, you know, who had to carry all of that and, and raise our daughter and everything. So very, very tough time. But, um, yeah. but yeah. I think that, <laughs> I mean, what was the overriding feeling that you had? Cause obviously using your brain is what, what you do. <laughs> That's your strategy. I, right? so, <laughs> I mean, it must have been sort of not knowing, not being given any answers that must've been absolutely terrifying. It really was, you know, I think around the three month mark or so I, I was sort of in the beginning, I think I was like, sort of just hoping that it would just be, it was just a bad concussion. It would go away in a couple of weeks, you know, when it didn't, and it was dragging on for a couple months around the three, four months mark. I just was in despair, you know, I was just sliding into like absolute anxiety and despair. And, um, at that time, you know, my neurologist wasn't helping me. I didn't have kind of care like that could explain to me what was going on. And so I was kind of desperate. You know, my husband was calling like brain injury, not for profits. He was just trying to find out if there was anybody who could help. And, um, and, and we ended up going to a sports clinic, a GP at a sports clinic who explained to me that actually, you know, brain injury is quite common among you know, rugby players and soccer players and that um, this kind of thing can happen. And she said, you know, you need to go see a psychologist. And I was like, really? Okay. So she, so I found a psychologist that specialized in brain injury. And that's when I think the moment of recovery really started because she helped me flip my lens on the whole situation. You know, I went from a, I think a pretty typical, like, am I ever going to get better? You know, I'm going to have no life if this is the rest of my life and just ruining the fact that I wasn't better. And, you know, why had this happened to me? What was I going to do? I went from that lens to kind of the opposite lens, which was like, she taught me how to think um, how everything's a bonus. She was like, well, first let's just accept that this did happen. And what's your baseline now? You know, what can you do today? And what can you do tomorrow? What can you do the day after? And so, you know, when I first started, I was very reluctant. I was like, well, what are you talking about? You know, today I can, all I did was make lunch. Like that's literally all I could do. And she was like, but that's a bonus, right? Like you probably may not have made lunch every, you may not have been able to make lunch every day this week, but you did make lunch. So that's a bonus. I was like, okay. So then she was like, the next day, what did you do? I said, well, I went for a, you know, a 10 minute, 10 minute walk. And she was like, that's amazing. That's a bonus. You know, so I started kind of actually tracking what I was able to do, tiny little things. And if you start doing that, you notice that there are tiny improvements mm. week to week, tiny improvements, because the way the brain and brain works and this is actually the case for um, all brain recovery and, you know, mental health is the same as brain health. So it's all mental health recovery too, that it's up and down. It's not a linear thing. So you might be able to do a little bit more today and the next day you really can't, you know, and that's okay. But once I started thinking about everything I could do as a bonus, I started feeling gratitude for every little tiny bit of recovery that I had. Yeah. And that gave me the strength and the willpower to keep going, you know, and I did get better slowly, very, very slowly. Like I remember I took a full seven months off work and then I tried to go back because they said to me, 
you know, it's going to feel hard as anything to go back. But if you don't try, you're not going to, you're not going to make it like you have to keep pushing yourself because it's like rehab, you know, it's like physio, it's like any other part of your body, like you got to work it. Right. So, so luckily, you know, I had a supportive workplace. They let me go back super part-time. I think I started two half days, you know, I just go in for a half day on a Tuesday morning and see how I did. And it was the hardest thing I've ever done. You know, I would go in the first day I went back, I'll never forget this. Some really kindly person, you know, a colleague just looked at me and was like, so how are you? You know, how are you doing? I burst into tears. Like I just burst into tears in the middle of the office in front of her because I, I was like, I don't, I can't even begin to explain to you how I've been doing, you know, cause it was just, it was like this act of kindness. I just didn't even, it's like the floodgates open. But so stuff like that would happen. You know, I couldn't control my emotions because emotional regulation is another thing that, you know, you have to build back. So it was super hard, but, but I kind of did it knowing that um, it takes like a tiny little bit at a time and trying to focus on everything as a bonus. I really, mm -hmm. I, oh, in the end, you know, I, I did it by realizing I did have the power to heal myself through, through compassion and, and kindness and, that made me a different kind of person. You know, I think I was a pretty typical kind of uh, typical insecure overachiever, I think, yeah. you know, and I think it turned me into someone who was a lot, had a lot more love for myself and a lot more love for the world than just people going through hard things. I think it really transformed who I was as a leader and um, as someone in the world in terms of my personal mission, like what am I trying to do with my life now that I have it back again? And yeah, it's taken years. You know, it's been four years and, you know, I joined Wiser about almost a year ago. It's the first time that I'm truly working full time, you know, in four years. Before that, I, um, I was at SBA, but I kind of did four to five days. Like I didn't really do the full time and I found that very hard. And even now, you know, it's hard. Like I, you know, we're in lockdown, everything's over Zoom. My brain still struggles with um, too much Zoom. So I sort of have to limit that. I have workarounds. Like sometimes I ask people to just talk to me on the phone. Sometimes I just say, you know, I can't have any more meetings. I need to time off. And, but, it's, but it's made me, I think, much more vocal about what I need. What I need, what I want, what I feel that everyone deserves. You know, whether or not you've suffered a catastrophic brain injury or not, like you need what you need, you know, it's made me feel okay to ask for what it is that I need to support myself at work. And I, that means that I can give that to mm. my team members too Goodness. and my colleagues. So yeah, such an ordeal. I mean, yeah, that time, <laughs> how do you feel about it now? And now you're sort of coming out the other end. Um, how do you feel about looking back over that time? How do you feel about that? You know, I, I think really I view it as a blessing. Mm. I think it was a wake up call and a blessing because like life is going to throw curveballs at you. It, it really just is at some point, you know, it could have been this, it's something else, you know, COVID-19 is a curveball. Most people around the world have experienced and you can either view it as, you know, like it is a hard thing to have gone through, but you can take it as something that will bring you some light and joy. You know, if you let it, if you let it, I think this was one of those things that completely changed me so much. And if I hadn't developed a different perspective on it and on myself, I don't think I would be where I am today. 
you know, because what I realized after I lost my brain was that I was still someone who had worthiness because I realized I had something deeper than my brain, which was my heart, which is not an organ or a part of my identity I had ever connected with before in that way. Like I always associated my success and ego and everything. It's like, it's all egos with my brain. Yeah. And after that happened, I was like, well, I had to accept if it didn't come back, which for a long time, I really didn't know if it was, you know, if it didn't come back, would I still live a great life? And I realized I, I would like, because it just wasn't about the brain. Like I didn't have to be a smart person solving problems. Like I could be a loving person mm. that would can, you know, build love and kindness and compassion and connection. And you don't need to be smart to do that. Yeah. <laughs> so I just yeah. realized like the thing that I valued more in life was the thing I already had. And it doesn't matter how much health I have. It doesn't matter what I can or can't do. Like that is the core of what gives me my purpose and my power. And when I had that, it's like the rest is just a bonus. Mm, goodness. But such a shift in identity, obviously with your, you know, the brain, the academics and all that sort of stuff, that background that you've got, and then has to have to shift the whole way you look at yourself. It uh, must be massive. But, yeah. yeah, it was, it was, it was, it was massive, but, uh, so I'm, I'm grateful to it. I, I'm grateful to it. Talk properly now. So, um, but then obviously you had a great career at CBA, but then you obviously wanted to, to try something different. What inspired you? It, was it this that inspired you to, to join a not-for-profit? It was, yeah, it was. Um, you know, I think at CBA, I was surrounded by really great people. I always loved the people there, you know, but I felt that, um, I felt that I had come back and been given the second chance at life and that, I needed to not squander it. You know, I felt like what I realized is time is so mercurial and, you know, it might get stolen from you. You don't know. You just don't know, you know? And I thought, you know, if, if I, if something else did happen, like how would I want to have spent my time, you know? And then I thought, gosh, you know, the time is now. Like, why wait? You know, why wait to make a difference? Like, what are you waiting for? And I think, even having gone through this, I just felt the immense um, kind of reservoir of compassion that I felt for, for myself and people who've gone through difficult things, which then I realized at that point, which was everybody in their own way. You know, everybody has suffering and pain that they've gotten through and, and everyone's on that journey. I felt so connected that I wanted to be in that business of building more connection, mm. you know, and I thought, actually the time is now. I don't, I think I, before this, I had this, before the brain injury, I had a story about my career of like investing in skills so that I could one day be the kind of leader that I wanted to be. And I realized that, you know, there's no need to wait, like just be the leader who you want to be today. Like you don't have to do it perfectly. It's going to look messy. You know, it looks like someone who may have a brain injury some days, like that's okay. Yeah. But yeah, I realized the time I just, I just ran out of patience, I guess. I was like, I gotta, I gotta live this life now. Like I, I can live this life now. And that's when I decided to leave, um, leave kind of the well-trodden path and just try something else. I was like, I really want to make a difference. What are the organizations that I really think are making a difference? And let me go after them. Yeah, it's really interesting. It's, um, it's a common conversation that I have with management consultants, actually, around wanting to be strategic, loving their strategic work, but um, obviously wanting to try and do something more purposeful with it. 
So when you were embarking on your job search, I mean, how did you start? How did you go about sort of making that first step and looking at opportunities that were more purposeful? Yeah, I mean, I think the first thing is just to talk to people, um, people that you know, and say, you know, I'm looking for inspiration and purpose, and I want to work on these big problems, you know, whether it's equality, equity in some way, or it's, you know, caring about um, the environment and balance, caring about sustainability, like whatever your set of issues are, and you can have more than one, you know, these things overlap. But I think it's to have that conversation and then to do that search. I didn't quit my job and then search. I searched while in my job, but I didn't search long. It just, it just happened, you know? And I think when you're open to it, the universe will kind of give you something, you know? <laughs> and, uh, and it's more about, I think the difference for me is I shifted from a mindset from looking for a job that someone else defined for me to deciding what my job should be and then getting that job, creating that job. Yeah. You know, I, that's the hard part to be like, what do I want? That's the real hard part. If you actually had that, you would have the conviction to go and say, hey, I think this should happen. So Lily, I'm fairly sure that when people found out that you were interested in exploring the opportunities in the market, that uh, you would have been tapped on the shoulder, obviously with your pedigree and, uh, and background. Was it hard to stay true to your calling? You know, obviously wanting that purpose-driven opportunity. Yeah, you know, I think, I think that would be common for, in a way, I, whenever I hire, I always think this way, like, you know, anyone I want to hire will have a lot of options, right? <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, I think, but when you're doing the job searching yourself, you always like are scared, right? You, you never feel like you're the one calling the shots, but really you are because the most important thing is deciding what's going to unlock your fire. You know, for me, I have over the years, I think, considered different things, thought about and almost convinced myself, you know, that this big corporate job, I could make a difference. You know, it's safe. It pays a lot. You know, I can work with other ex-consultants and all the usual boxes. But actually, I know myself enough to know that that's not enough. You know, I don't want to have to convince myself that a company is doing good. I want to be the person that creates that vision. And I want to be the person that builds that, builds that, right? So I think it depends on what role you want to play, you know, and I think very often we just undersell ourselves. Like, you don't, we don't have the courage to just go and say this, this is what I'm building in the world, Mm. you know, but it's there for you. It's really there for everyone. And I don't say that as someone just because I came back and you know, have the pedigree that I do in the brain. What? No, I say that as someone, I would say the same thing if my brain didn't come back in the same way, yeah. you know, because it's the heart of me that says that. And I fully believe that that's, that's where the motivation and the purpose comes from. It isn't from being strategic, not at all. It is from being, being connected to your heart. Yeah. And obviously you, you love your job at, at Wiser. So what, Tell us a little bit more about Wiser, what it does, and you know, how, how is it that it's a purpose-driven company? Yeah, yeah. You know, I, I do love Wiser. It's really, it's a wonderful company. And it's an interesting story. Um, I think Wiser started out as a um, peer-to-peer lender, 
back when fintechs were just starting in Australia and they were trying to disrupt the big banks by offering alternative models that would offer consumers a better deal of finance. And I think very quickly they realized that, you know, it's not really the peer-to-peer model that really matters. It's actually the focus on solving um, customers for, like solving problems for the customer, not being constrained by an existing financial product P&L, you know, in an old way of doing things. And so Wiser became a purpose-led company with financial wellness at the heart of our purpose. And, you know, I'm very passionate about purpose-led companies because I think we all deserve to spend our time in a way that really feels value aligned and feels like it's fulfilling our purpose. And I think more and more people want to work for purpose-led companies and there's no reason every single company should not be purpose-led. You know, I think it's just a relic of the old way of capitalism that is slowly going to be phased out. And, you know, I'd like to be among the vanguard that leads that change. So I think Wiser's purpose is financial wellness. It's a real big, important problem in the world because, um, you know, I know so many people um, who, like growing up, money was a source wound in their households, you know, and a lot of people, including lots of ex-consultants, you know, including a lot of wealthy people, because this isn't constrained by income, are very hemmed in by this notion of money, you know, and feel like they're not free and feel like they have to, you know, be trapped in a golden cage and maybe it doesn't make them happy, but their relationship with money is, is a very insecure one. And all the research around financial wellness shows that it's very much both an objective and subjective problem, you know, and there's so much to be done to solve it that lots of business models are yet to be invented to solve it. And so I thought, what a great, you know, sort of open blue sky problem and creative space to get involved in. And what better way to do it than to work within a purpose-led company where all the decisions are made in line with purpose, you know, and, and that's the, the kind of way of decision-making, which I think is really important. You know, it's not, it's not about business strategy, but it's about the combination of that with the heart and doing the right thing and focusing on what it is that makes a deep difference to people, not a shallow, like convenience difference, you know, but a really deep moral difference. And so that's why I came to Wiser. And, and I think with purpose like companies, you get a different culture too. So that's the thing that I've really most enjoyed um, about Wiser since starting. Just, I really love the culture. Like it's such a authentic, psychologically safe culture for real, you know, like people, Uh, Yeah, just for example, like I just sent out a message on Slack to all the parents just talking about how challenging homeschool is because you just added 45 hours of work into your work week that you used to have somebody else do, you know, your your teachers, your, you know, aftercare. So I somehow now, you know, all the working parents with young homeschool age kids who, you know, can't look after themselves during the day. Um, suddenly have this extra job and it's really difficult to juggle and you have to bring that stuff out into the open. You've got to openly acknowledge that, you know, accommodate that, talk about how it's okay for the rest of the team to pick up the slack and to help each other out. Like you don't have to sit there feeling guilty that, you know, other people are doing the work while you're, you know, trying to get your kid to do their math lesson. And I was like, you know, we need to 
let's openly talk about that. It's a safe environment. Like let everybody be seen. It is okay for other people to help you out during this difficult time. It is okay to put your hand up and say, I cannot work full time. Let's be honest here. You know, I'll be the first to say that. And I think it's a kind of environment where you can do that. And it's, it's very deliberate. And, you know, like that's part of what I love about it. And I think um, the purpose led nature feeds into that, right? Because we're so connected with achieving a deeper moral purpose in the world and really thinking about people, um, you know, we'll really engage with all the things that really matter to people, whether it is sustainability, um, you know, Wiser became the first climate positive fintech this year, um, whether it is about equity, you know, we, we do a, like, we started doing, you know, acknowledgement to country, in all our public meetings, you know, we talk about the important equity issues of our time in our society. We raise a lot of awareness around gender and, you know, just all the things that people care about. I actually think these things are all very, very, very connected in a way. And you certainly can't divorce those issues from financial wellness, you know. Um, so, so, yeah, I think it's a place you can bring all of that heart in. Mm. And that makes a huge difference to unlocking high performance because, when people feel seen and they feel appreciated for everything, you know, warts and all difficulties and all, you get a lot more authenticity and you get a lot more passion. And when you get a lot more passion, you get a lot more delivery. Yeah. So, you know, it it works out from a business perspective too. (laughs) Um, So working for a big corporate versus working for a a FinTech feels very different day to day. Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, the pace at which we move because we're a tech company and, you know, we can build stuff super quickly. Yeah, it's amazing. Uh, I think for me, I absolutely love, I'm kind of a rules breaker kind of person, you know, a bit of a rebel. Like if you tell me not to do something, I'm like, well, let me just try. Let me just see, you know. Um, So I think it's a fun place to um, especially do strategy and innovation work because you can run experiments super, super quickly. And there's not a lot of red tape, you know, like at a big organization, there's so much compliance and and red tape to worry about to try to test something new with customers. And I think when you're in the fintech space, you can just run those experiments really quickly and you can test a whole bunch of things. You can build a portfolio of experiments very, very quickly. So it's much more, it's much more akin to, um, and, and I've learned so much more about tech, you know, how to build tech products very, very quickly. Um, it's a great skill set. So I, I think it's a wonderful um, sector. I mean, it, it is hard work. Like startups are not easy. You know, you, you end up working long hours. Like it's definitely has the long hours, high performance aspect of it. But the difference is that it's, it's so enjoyable, mm. you know, and you're so seen when you're doing it yeah. <laughs> that it doesn't feel um, like kind of in the toiling in obscurity in the background for a cause that you feel slightly mixed about. Mm, absolutely. And look, Lily, we get asked literally most days from candidates about how to get into the, the fintech space. It's an increasingly popular aspiration for management consultants that are looking for their move out, first move out of consulting or even those in, in financial services. But it's also quite a competitive space. Um, what advice would you give to an up and coming consultant keen to look at a fintech? What, what experience would be looked upon favorably? Yeah, I think... Um... I think there's a real affinity between strategy, innovation, and product. So I think product development, you know, tech product development, product ownership is 
a great sort of adjacency that um, strategy folks can explore. I think they'd be phenomenal at it. It'd be great for them to get some experience at it. Um, and that the combination of those, I think, would really help in the fintech world because everything is a product role, you know, in a way. Um, and I think uh, pure strategy can sound a bit like it only applies to big corporates sometimes, but really, like, it, it applies everywhere. Um, it's just about, like, visualizing things and getting them done. But yeah. the language of that might be coded more product in the fintech world. So that's something that I would explore, understand. You know, consultants are fabulous at learning, right? So learn what product ownership is all about. Like what, what does it involve mm. to own and build a tech product and speak that language yeah. would be the advice that I have. But the second thing is, I think this would be no different for exploring any industry, but, but yeah, use your network and, and talk to people, reach out to people, just have a one-on-one -on -one conversation with someone because it's only through, when you're trying to get into a niche industry, it's always through relationships that you you build the connections that ultimately get you a job, right? So you don't want, you don't need to rest on your laurels of being a BCG or McKinsey or whatever. Like you can just get in because of the person that you are, you know, of who you are and who you are will only be known when you start building relationships. So this is true. my advice is like, just talk to people, build a connection, you know, get curious and that's how you'll get a job. And I find a lot of the consultants put a huge amount of pressure on themselves to find utopia. You know, their first move out of consulting has to be exactly like X, Y, and Z. How would you suggest that they look at their sort of their career options that are presented to them when so that they're looking for their first move out of consulting? Yeah, I think I super empathize with that, you know, because it's really scary. Like consulting is a super well-trodden path. Right. You go in and they're like, OK, well, two years at this level, two years at this level, blah, blah, blah. And your whole life is laid out in front of you and super clear what success looks like. You know, maybe hard, requires a lot of hours and travel, but it's it's there. Whereas when you leave, you're like, I have no idea, you know, and how is it that someone becomes this mysterious CEO? And, you know, what if I never figure it out and I just get stuck in this middle management layer? And it's very terrifying. Right. So I, I fully understand it. But I think that's one of those things where you got to back yourself that you need to trust yourself. You're going to figure it out. You're a hundred percent going to figure it out. You're not, you're not going to know and you're not going to find the right job, but you're going to go into whatever job. And then you're going to start using your consulting skill set and be like, what is this company anyways? Like, what is it doing? And do I even agree? And where are the opportunities for improvement and where should it be going? And then you start having those conversations wherever you are. And then all of a sudden, you're not in the job that you started in, and you're in some other job in that organization, or you're realizing that, you know, you could be in another organization. Like, it just, your skill set will naturally help you get there, is, is what I would say. And don't stress about the job, because likely, you'll go in, and you'll do that job max for a year or two, right? And then you'll max out that job, because you're too curious, and you'll, you know, you'll end up in a different job, and so on and so on. And then you'll find your way into the answers. So long as you're enjoying it and you're being curious along the way and already knowing that this is no job is a life sentence, but every job is a stepping stone to what you enjoy and what you're learning on the path of life. Mm, that's amazing advice. Um, what advice, what's the best advice you've ever been given? Well, I mean, I think it's all the personal stuff, which is, um, you know, know what your values are. You know, my, my personal values are courage and creativity 
And so I, I look for opportunities where I can exercise that. And if I don't get to exercise that, it's not the right opportunity for me, you know? Um, but, I, but I also think beyond values and really, really deeply knowing what yours are, one of the good pieces of advice was that I received from an executive coach was, um, you know, some people say, okay, well, if you're looking for a job, go and have a lot of coffees, right? And put a lot of feelers out there. And the, I got the opposite advice. And it was like, don't go have a lot of coffees. Just go for the one thing that you want. Like the one organization that you want, the person, just go to the chair of the board, go to the CEO, like talk to the people who are going to make the decisions and go build a relationship with them and see where you can go. You know, and I, that, <laughs> and I think that's really the better way. That's the better way to know what you want because good things will come, but only if you actually want it because when you actually want it for yourself and not for not because of the fear that somebody else might or might not want you because you know I think most of us are driven by fear and insecurity like but do you want me you know give me the option and then I can choose right and it's like you just want to be wanted and then you can choose but actually you don't even need to go through the yeah. whole pretension of you know trying to get people to want you like just figure out what you want and go get it <laughs> that's the best advice I've ever gotten. So and when I figure that I want, it's much easier to go get it because you're like, here's what I want and why. And then you can tell that story and that story is going to be convincing. And then you are going to get the job that you want because you have managed to convince yourself. Yeah. That's amazing. Just focus on what you want. Sometimes it's just hard knowing, knowing what they want. So they need to figure that out first, I think. But um, <laughs> um, given the lockdown, obviously. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and that's hard. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, Lily, we're obviously in lockdown and people have more time to indulge in some like reading or, you know, watching TED Talks or podcasts or whatever. What recommendations do you have of books or, or podcasts or TED Talks that may have inspired you over the, over the years? Yeah, well, this is what I always recommend because it's the one book that has made the most difference to me since I've had the brain injury. And I actually listen to it um, over and over again. Like I listen to it probably every few months, you know, because every single time I do, I take away something else and, and something deeper. Um, and it is an audio book. It's actually a recorded workshop. So it's not really a book, but it's an audio book that you can get on Audible. Um, and it's Brene Brown's The Power of Vulnerability. Mm. Um, and it's about like a six-hour workshop that she recorded to a live audience. And it's just, it's got so much wisdom. It's got so much wisdom and how to live your life and how to be, you know, how to really see other people and how to let yourself be seen and how to practice that. That um, it's sort of the thing that unlocks my when I'm feeling scared, when I'm feeling anxious, it's a thing that helps me kind of unlock the inner strength that I know is there, but I've forgotten. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that's what I recommend. Um, it's a, it's a wonderful, wonderful read. And, and the first chapter, maybe like uh, listen to it if you want, but it's probably a bit more for Americans. It talks about, you know, culture and stuff, but starting from the second chapter. Yeah. It's just wonderful. And I think, I think there's so much wisdom in it. Well, I've listened to the audio, but I mean, Brene's, I'm a big fan of Brene, so I would highly recommend her to, and all of her stuff actually. But yeah, thanks for that. Um, is there any other advice you'd like to give, um, you know, the up and coming, you know, management consultants or anyone from the cohort that you'd like to, that maybe want to follow in your footsteps? 
Yeah. Yeah. Well, first, you know, I don't think anybody needs to follow in anybody's footsteps. They just go and create their own path, which is going to be bright and bold and beautiful. My advice is whatever you're waiting for, it's already inside you. You know, I, I, I feel like people just wait and wait. Like I was waiting and waiting, you know, to kind of be the kind of leader that I aspired to be or, or wanted to be, or didn't know who I wanted to be. And, you know, was on, on all of that, like not too sure mode, which I think a lot of people are in, but there's the day, you know, when I started going back to work, I was, I was weaker than I was before, right? I had less brain power. I had a lot less energy. I couldn't think very well. I had issues with memory. All of that stuff was there, but I felt stronger because I was more connected to my values and to the part of me that wasn't reliant on my brain health. And I think that actually lives inside everybody, right? You don't, you don't need a brain injury. It, it already lives in you. <laughs> and, um, and yeah, I would just say, like, don't wait. Be the kind of leader you want to be now. You already are. Just let that person come out and play, you know, and make it happen. Like, and it doesn't, it's not going to happen like just by waving a wand, but, but I think to just keep following that part of inspiration, like you will get there. It'll come to you and just trust it'll come to you. I think I have a lot more faith in the universe in that I'm open to learning the lessons now. Mm. And I think just tapping into that part of myself where I can listen to, to just seek out wisdom and what unlocks, like what makes my heart feel really connected to the world like searching out for those moments, those moments then guide my career choices. Mm. So there's something about, you know, you mentioned podcast books or whatever, but where is it that you go look for that healing transformation? Where do you go to get that sense of like, yeah, you know, I'm connected to this world. I really care about something. Like what are those places that you go and keep following that, cultivate that, that will actually tell you where your career will lead, I think. Amazing. Yeah. You're an inspiration, Lily. Um, really enjoyed speaking to you and, you know, how you've overcome adversity and it must have been terrifying back then. I can't imagine, but um, I've really enjoyed the hours we spent talking to each other. So thanks very much for, for being on the Strategy Bites podcast. Thank you. Thanks so too. I just hope that I, you know, leave it with you and everyone that, you know, I'm not some superwoman or superhuman being who've gone through this and is like, no, this is like everyone, this is every single one of us. You know, I was no stronger than anybody else when this happened to me. And I think um, it's more realizing just how much love there lives inside every person's heart that has given me the feeling that even I could do it, <laughs> you know, and I, I felt awful doing it, but even I could do it. And, and if I could do it, then anyone can do it. And yeah, I, I just, I wouldn't want people to be like, oh, well, you know, she can do it, but I can't. No, you can. You can, is my message. You can. It's inside you. I know it. <laughs> Thank you so much, Lily. Thank you, Anika. Take care. Stay safe. Thank you so much for listening to the Strategy Bites podcast, bringing strategy career advice to the market. But please do remember that first and foremost, Oaktree Talent is a specialist strategy and transformation recruitment agency. So if you're a top tier consultant or want to hire excellent strategy capability, please get in touch. Thank you.